Okay, well this morning we are in John uh, chapter 19, and we're going to cover verses thir- uh, excuse me, 17 through 37. So not, not quite to the end of the chapter, but good 20 verses here. Again, uh, we are in uh, ni- chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, that they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Father, we ask that you add your blessing to uh, our study this morning. Father, we pray that uh, your word uh, will be clear to us. Father, we pray that you will uh, use your word uh, to accomplish what you have set forth to accomplish today. And we ask that you will change us because we are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we have, in John's gospel, come uh, to his... Uh, record of the crucifixion of Christ. 
these uh, 21 verses that we just read uh, give us a what we would call a sparse account of the details um, of this uh, pivotal moment in um, redemptive history. The other Gospels give us additional details, uh, but none of them individually gives us the complete account of what happened on this Friday afternoon. We know from the other accounts that Jesus spoke seven statements while he was on the cross. And John here in these verses we read, he only mentions three. And so for uh, the purposes of our study today, we're going to stick with John's account. Okay, we're going to stay here. Uh, and we're just going to cover what John uh, covers here. And so here in uh, John begins with this account in verses uh, in verse 17 and 18. And John says, and he, of course, he's referring to Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Galgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, remember, uh, uh, when when John tells us that cross that Christ uh, bore his cross, sometimes we have in our minds uh, a picture maybe of some artist. Uh, renditions of this account. Uh, many of the ones that have been done over the years are are wrong in the depiction. They they most of them depict Jesus carrying an entire cross. Okay, the vertical beam and the horizontal beam. However, it was the practice of the Romans to require the prisoner to only carry the cross beam. Okay, so that's that's the only piece of the cross that Jesus was required to carry here. Uh, the vertical piece will would have already been at the site where the execution is going to take place. So the prisoner here is is just only so that's that's what he's carrying, just the cross beam, not the entire uh, cross. Obviously, it was a serious piece of wood, too, very heavy. What we know is that many times the the prisoners, because of the beatings and uh, the scourging that that would have happened uh, beforehand, many times. The prisoners were not able to carry the cross beam all the way. Um, and, and of course, it happens here. We know it happens here with Jesus as well. We don't, John really doesn't mention it here, but we know that Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel tell us that Jesus couldn't carry it. He was too strong. And, what, and the soldiers, you remember, commanded uh, Simon of Cyrene to carry uh, the beam the rest of the way. What we do know is that we can estimate that Jesus did carry the beam about as far as the city gate. He got to there, and that's about where he couldn't carry it anymore. Once they arrived at the execution site, this is in general, I'm talking in general now, what generally happened with prisoners who were executed. So they're they're required to carry the cross beam. Uh, Once they arrived at the site, the, the prisoner was laid flat on the ground, Okay, um, his arms were either nailed or tied to the crossbeam. Uh, in the case of Jesus, uh, we know that nails were used in this case. We cannot be sure if uh, they pierced his hands or his wrists. We cannot be absolutely sure, um, but it was one or the other. Now when the prisoner, after this was done, so he's now affixed to the crossbeam, the prisoner is. And at this point, uh, the prisoner was hoisted up and the crossbeam was then attached to the vertical beam, which would already be in place. And that was done with nails as well. 
Another thing they would do is they would attach uh, a small platform to the vertical piece, a very small platform, so that uh, the prisoner could push his body up um, and catch his breath during the agony of crucifixion. Now, um, when, when you're thinking about that, it sounds like, well, that's, that's nice, right? Uh, they're trying to, to help, help the prisoner out, but it, it really was not. It was not an act of mercy. It was actually designed. Okay, you think of who designed this, the Romans. Okay, this, this was not designed to be easy. Everything they did was designed to make it worse and harder. Uh, the platform was only there to prolong and to extend the torture. That's the only reason it was there. Most times, the uh, prisoners who were executed uh, would die from asphyxiation. That's what they would they would they would be hanging there for so long, and they would um, and we'll talk about it some more. Uh, but they would basically they couldn't breathe. That's usually what they were beaten so bad already. And then they would hang there, and then they would usually die from asphyxiation. Now, John tells us that two criminals were also crucified along with Jesus, one on either side, Jesus being in the middle. Matthew and Mark tell us that they were robbers. Okay, that's what, and, and, and of course, you know from Luke's account that uh, Luke tells us that one of the, the thieves repented. On the cross, right? And, and what did Jesus tell him? Those amazing words. Today, you will be with me in paradise. We learned that from Luke's account. Um, if, if just as an aside note, and I know Matthew uh, has seen this, uh, go and Google it. I know it's on YouTube somewhere. Go and Google uh, Alistair Begg talking about uh, the man um, or, or the man in the middle cross. He's referring to Jesus. But go Google this. It's, it's on YouTube. It's... I don't know when then Alistair presented this, but it's just like, I will not try to, to uh, replicate it because it's absolutely amazing. But he's talking about the thief, the one who repented. And then his encounter, you know, because he, he died and, and went to heaven right there uh, on the spot as Jesus says. But just to hear that whole, go, just go, you, will, you will absolutely love it. Just go do it, trust me. It, it's wonderful. So, that, of course, that's, John doesn't address this. We learned this from the other accounts. Now, the fact that Jesus was crucified among these criminals, now that was also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We find these words in, in Isaiah 53, 12. It says, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. He was crucified with the transgressors. Now, the word uh, also to robbers, uh, the word that is used is the same word that John uses to describe Barabbas. Okay, so these are probably not common thieves. Uh, you remember we talked about Barabbas last time? He was more like a terrorist. So probably a similar kind of thing with these two guys. They were not just petty thieves. Uh, they were more like the, the terrorists of the day. John goes on in verses 19 through 20, says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but 
He said, I am the king of the Jews. Then Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, what it, was, it was customary for executions for a placard to be placed on the cross. And it would have on the placard, it would be the reason for the execution, the charge, whatever, whatever it was. And in fact, um, the prisoners would often carry this with them as hanging around their neck. They would carry the placard as they left the place of judgment to the execution site, they actually carry this placard around their neck. So as they're going through the city, that the people obviously know what's about to happen, and then the charge would be, they'd be carrying the charge around their neck as a placard. Well, in this case, uh, Pilate himself wrote this sign that went, this placard that went on Jesus' cross, and it says, uh, John tells us he wrote it in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. However, the, 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 this placard that he put on Jesus' cross did not state the charge. Notice. It simply said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, as by the, the reply here, this really did upset the Jews. They were very upset about this. Um, they, of course, denied that Jesus was the King of the Jews. Um, they, they protested to Pilate, they complained. But Pilate, by this time, has had all he can stand of the Jews. Remember, he's been trying to get them out of here. He didn't want anything to do with this. He is really aggravated with them. And so he had enough. And so he just dismisses them with these famous words, right, that we all know. What I have written, I have written. Basically says, I'm not changing it. It is what it is. This is what it's going to be. John's account uh, continues here in verses 23 and 24. It says, John says, when the sol- Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, and to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. And notice uh, first here, John tells us that they divided Jesus' clothes among themselves. Now, they can do this because at this time, we can reasonably, without doubt, question that Jesus has been stripped completely naked. The, the practice of doing this with prisoners, um, this was a common practice. This, was, this came from um, an idea that, and the Romans shared this, that the worst form of humiliation that could be imposed upon a defeated enemy was to strip him of his clothes. In fact, um, frequently when the Romans conquered an area and conquered an enemy, they would take the officers of the conquered foe and they would parade them through the streets completely naked in order to absolutely and abjectly humiliate them, to reduce them to just total shame. And Dr. Sproul said, he says, these are his words. If you can bear it, in all probability, the Son of Man was made a public spectacle 
and the shame of nakedness following this ancient custom. If you can, that's hard to bear, isn't it? That is hard to bear. But most likely, that was what was happening here. John tells us that uh, the tunic was made with no seam. So that meant that it was significantly valuable. And so the soldiers did not want to lessen the value of this tunic by dividing it into four parts, and so they decided to cast lots for it. Now this was also, again, this was prophesied. This was prophesied in Psalm 22, and, and, and John has provided that for us. John, John is quoting Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Of course, now, the Roman soldiers didn't know that this was prophesied. John is telling this for your benefit, for our benefit, right? Uh, he's making the connection for us of the events that are happening uh, in real time. That, and John saying, this has been prophesied for hundreds of years. It's just been here that this will happen. John mentions this. Why? He mentions the garments, right? Because he wants... Uh, the readers, and you and me, we're reading this now here today, some 2,000 years later, that he wants us to know that this act of gambling, casting lots for Christ's clothes was, was a fulfillment of the very precise details from the Old Testament. John, John, again, he wants the reader to know that these events did not happen by accident. None of these things happened by accident. The, the invisible hand of providence of God is at work in all of these events. John tells us that uh, he tells us about some of the people who were present there to witness. He doesn't give us an exhaustive list. I'm sure there were more, but he tells us of a couple. Now here in verse 25, John says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Now, when you read this sentence, okay, looking at the structure, we're not exactly sure how many people John's talking about because you can read it a couple of different ways, right? You could read it, uh, you say Jesus, uh, excuse me, uh, 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 his mother, that's one person, uh, and his mother's sister, two people, Mary, the wife of Clopas, three people, and Mary Magdalene, four people. Or you can read it this way, Jesus, his, his mother, and his mother's sister, who was Mary, the wife of Clopas, one person, right? And Mary Magdalene. We can't be exactly sure whether it's three or four people. We don't know if his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, are the same person or not. Do you see how that's a little bit different there, how it's, how it's structured? We just can't really tell. But it doesn't matter. In, in any way, we know that three or four women were there. They were standing at the cross watching the execution and included in the group is Jesus' own mother. Of course, this was also prophesied many years earlier on the day that baby Jesus was presented at the temple. Remember when, what, what did Simeon say? Simeon told Mary, he says, Yes, a sword were pierced through your own soul also. Luke 2, 35. He's talking to Mary. Our sword is, you're the mother of the Savior, to the mother, a sword is going to pierce through your soul as well. Now, you mothers in the room, if you had to witness something like this, is that an accurate description of what you might be feeling like? A sword going through your own soul? 
watching your son be crucified and being shamed. I imagine it would feel that way, wouldn't it? So you can imagine what, what this is going through. You can imagine what Mary's going through. So Jesus is suffering, right? We know that. Mary is also. She's enduring her own agony. Again, you mothers in the room can very easily put yourself probably in her own place and you know what you might be thinking and you can know, sympathize with her what she might be going through. Verse 26 and 27 says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now here is where we learn from John that John was there. Right? John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So now we learn John is there. He is with them at the cross. Jesus says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he told John, Behold your mother. Now, because of the company, we can understand this, but Jesus was not saying, Mother, look at me. That's not what he was saying. Right? We know that by the context of, of what else he says here, right? He, he was saying to his mother, I want you now to consider John as your son. That's what, she, that's what Jesus was saying. I want you now to consider John as your son. He was saying, woman, behold your son. He's referring to two people that he is talking to. He was, he was, he was tell, what was he telling John? He was telling John, okay, now I want you to take care of my mother. I'm, I'm leaving and, and I'm about to die. I mean, we know that he's coming back. He knows that he's coming back. But he's saying, I want you to take care of my mother now. We can safely uh, presume that Mary's husband, Joseph, uh, has died. And Jesus' brothers are not here at this time. Remember, Jesus' brothers at this time were not convinced of who Jesus was. They're not here. They're not even in town. And so he asked, Jesus asked John to care for his mother. And what does John tell us? That he did that. What does he say? He says, and from that hour, that very hour, that disciple, John, took Mary to his own home. John did exactly what Jesus asked him to do. He considered Mary his own mother and took care of her. Why is home in for, um, italics in my version? Do you know? Uh, I can't be 100% sure why it would be in italics. It's not referenced in mine. I'm not sure why they would italics, italics that. Any other help from the more learned men in the, room, in the group as to why the translation would do that? I don't know. The editors would put that in italics. Don't sometimes they do that when they don't have the, maybe it's a different word maybe, but they kind of italicize that. Is that something that was commonly done? I'm not, a, the, the smart men in the room are looking, they're looking around. Saying, hmm, not sure. Um, verse, in verse 27, uh, the word home is italicized in the New King James Version. Um, not sure why. Anyone else got an idea? 
We can come back to it if you don't you want to move on. I'm not sure. In the Greek, it says to his own that would help them understand what that meant. To us who read English, maybe it wouldn't have made as much sense. So we have to have a word put there to help us get the gist of what it means. Probably a good explanation. Reasonable. I see some heads shaking, nodding. <coughs> Resident theologian. Miss Pam helps us. Very good. That, that, that's a, that sounds like a really good explanation. Thank you, Ms. Pam. <clears throat> now, so, getting back on track here. Good question. Good question. Good answer. So John tells us that he did exactly that. He did take Mary into his own home and took care of her. Now, let's, um, when Jesus said to his mother, he addressed her as woman. Okay, that, you know, when we say this, and, we, and we've talked about this before, right? And we joke around our own home. I look when I'm messing with Karen, right? I say, woman, listen. You know, I'm messing with her a little bit, but it's more of a joke. I don't know if she takes it as, maybe she doesn't take it as a joke. It's meant as a joke, but whatever. <laughs> um, this, when, when Jesus said this, he, he, was, he was not, he, he, was, he was using a term of honor. Okay, he was using a term of tenderness. This was not a term of disrespect. He was not disrespecting his mother. We discussed it earlier. Uh, you remember the wedding, wedding at Cana. Jesus and his mother was also there. And you remember uh, what uh, she wanted him to do something about. They ran out of wine. And he said, woman, my time has not come. That was not a disrespectful term. That was a term of honor. Okay, that was not a, a term of disrespect. Uh, he also, this is another thing that we know from Jesus's, uh, from, from our study in John, Jesus also used the same term when he addressed the woman caught in adultery. If you remember, uh, in the middle, uh, you remember that whole thing. They were, she was brought to them. She was caught in the act of adultery, right? I mean, it just happened. She's here. A um, lot of speculation as to what kind of shape she was in, but whatever. She was in the middle of this event, right? She was in the middle of her shame. And what do you see, Jesus? Did, did Jesus address her in some disrespectful manner? No. It was a term of honor, of respect, of tenderness. And Dr. Sproul noted here, he says, this, this is a side of our Savior that we need to see. He was tender and respectful towards his mother and other women. He was. He always was. He was always very tender, very respectful of women. John then writes here, in verses 28 through 29, he says, After this, knowing Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Again, John was here, so he's witnessing this, these events. But, he, under, the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, uh, John writes that Jesus knew at this point, okay, John uses the words that all things were now accomplished. John writes it, Jesus knew it, that at this point all things are now accomplished. What does that mean? Well, that means a lot. Okay, uh, we could talk about it for a long time, but basically, the, and this, because of we just don't have that kind of time, uh, basically this means that um, Jesus' uh, substitutionary bearing of God's wrath against sin, okay, which 
was a, by the other gospels, there was a matter of hours there, right? What, what was happening? We don't, we're not talking about it because it's not a John's. We know it's been dark for what, three, four hours, right? Darkness has covered the whole area. We know that uh, the, the, the veil in the temple was torn. All these things happened, right? That, that, that John doesn't really mention. But all those things are going, it's been, it's been dark now for hours. And so we know that Jesus has been suffering. He's been suffering agony. He's been on the cross. Uh, we know in Matthew, uh, Matthew 27, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are things that are happening. All, what John is saying here, all that is now behind. That is now behind him. The, 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 when, when Jesus, when we learn in the garden, when he, was, um, when he was dealing with the agony and the pain that he knew was coming, this is what he was thinking. This was on his mind. This agony, this, this bearing of the wrath of God against sin. Because you remember, God cannot wink at sin. That's the purpose of Jesus' dying on the cross, right? Somebody has to pay. Right, the wrath has to be poured out. Somebody has to pay against sin, and so this, this substitutionary atonement, this, this, the the wrath of God has been poured out on His Son, and this is what's been happening. And so, Jesus, John acknowledges that Jesus knows that's now behind. This agony that He has been through, certainly it is uh, physical agony. Right, He's been now. Uh, at this point, he's been on the cross in the middle of the hot sun for hours, right? <laughs> middle of the day. Um, so he's, it, he, he's been crucified, obviously extremely excruciating pain. He's been scourged. But the spiritual agony that he was going through was what Jesus was really fearing. This is, the Son and the Father have never been apart, Right? They've always been in perfect harmony for all eternity. The Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. Now, what's between them? What is God? God's pouring out the wrath of sin on His Son. Jesus doesn't, doesn't know sin. He's never sinned. This is an amazing... It's, there's a lot happening here. But what, we can, what we're saying is that this, this wrath has been poured out. It's now behind Him. Is what John tells us and that Jesus acknowledges. So it... It should not surprise us that Jesus is thirsty, right? This is this too fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. I am being poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. That's Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, and fifteen. Jesus said, I thirst. The soldiers uh, took some wine that was some sour wine is what it says. It was there for their use. Uh, they, they filled a sponge with it. They put it on uh, a hyssop stick and handed it up to his mouth. And verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. After, after receiving the wine, he said those three words, it is finished. Now the Greek word translated here, finished, is in a form of the Greek that it indicates that an action has been totally completed. 
It comes, it comes from uh, the verb form of a Greek word, telos, which means the end or goal. In fact, this, this same Greek word has been found on, on um, the receipt in this time, okay, receipts for taxes, meaning this paid in full. The same word. Jesus here, he, Jesus knows why He's on the cross. He's always known. It's always been the plan, right? He would come and He would be here. He knows His purpose for being there. He knows here at this point his, the significance of His entire life on earth. That he, The reason He came and was born. The significance came down to this very moment. And when He said, it is finished... He was not saying that his life was over, right? He was not saying my life is over. He was saying my mission has been fulfilled. The reason I came here, it has been done. I came to do what? To offer my life as a sacrifice for sinners. To take the wrath and the punishment for sin. And to take it upon myself. And pay it. And satisfy it. And it's been done. It has been done. We, we believe that um, when Jesus said these things and Jesus said it is done, we, we believe that the atonement that Christ made for sins, it was actual payment. Okay? Act, Reformed doctrine teaches us that it was an actual payment for actual sins of real people, namely the elect. Okay? That's where it's, this is, builds upon, what we talked about this, we talked about the L, right? Limited atonement, definite atonement. This atonement was not, it was done, when he said it's finished, it's done. The atonement has been made, it is completed, payment in full, for who? Every sin of every believer, of every elect person. Sins paid for actually at that moment that means if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ your sins were paid for at this very moment the penalty for your sins at that very moment paid for satisfied paid in full not potential he didn't put a deposit where we go and take installments from no real actual payment for sins done deal sealed now, if that doesn't kind of give you some chills or something, I don't know what will. Jesus will say, when He says, I, it is finished, everything, His purpose of coming to earth, everything that He has come here is going to the cross that has been accomplished. Jesus said, I've, I've done it all. I have, I have drank the cup to the dregs. I've drank all of it. Right? The cup of the wrath, I drank all of it, even to the very dregs. The, 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 the drippings in the bottom, all of it, it's completely dry. All the wrath of God, I have taken it. The sin debt of my people has been paid in full. Wow. With, at this point, with nothing left to do, what does he say? Jesus gave up his spirit. He had said earlier in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one took his life from him. No one took his life from him. Rather, he voluntarily and willingly gave it up. You can't kill God. Right? He's God. You can't kill God. He gave his life up. His mission was complete. The atonement was made. And he made the decision to die. Verses 31 through 34. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. These pious Jews were concerned because it was the preparation day for the Sabbath. It's also also Passover. And according to Deuteronomy 21.33, if the bodies of the condemned men stood on, or hung on the cross overnight, then the entire land will be defiled. So that's going to be a problem. For us Jews, we have Sabbath observed tomorrow and it's going to be a problem. And so the Jews asked Pilate, hey, would you break their legs? Now, what's the significance? Well, we talked a little bit about it earlier. With their legs broken, they could not push up on that platform. Could they? You can't do that. They would, they would come with a, a, a cast iron rod and they would brutally break the legs of the prisoners so they couldn't stand up. And so that they would die quicker. The Jews were not concerned okay, about putting uh, Jesus or the other men out of their misery. They were concerned about what? The purity of the feasts. This was not an act of mercy. This was an act of expedience. Right? Let's hurry up and get this thing over with. We've got to get ready for the Sabbath tomorrow. Again, the tragic irony here they had they had just killed the one capital o for whom the feasts were established in the first place they had just killed him Pilate granted this request uh, but when it came to jesus they found he had already died there was no reason to break his legs but one of the soldiers did pierce his side we see that. And perhaps uh, just to make sure that he was dead. And then we see blood and water poured out. But John John explains the significance here, right? John here in verses 36 and 37 he says, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. John's referring to Psalm 34:20 and Zechariah 12:10. Those, those verses, those those verses, uh, and and the Psalm 20, uh, 34 passage. But the Lord delivers him out of all. He guards all his bones; not one of them is broken. And Zechariah says, "I will pour out on the house of David and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, that when they look on me, whom they pierced, yes, they will mourn for him as they mourn for only his only son, and grieve for him." As for one who grieves for a firstborn. 
And here in verse 35, John inserts a, a personal note, kind of before he gives the thing about the, the Scriptures being fulfilled. He says, and he, this, now John's referring to himself in verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. Why? So that you may believe. John's saying, I was there. I saw all these things. I was with Jesus. Why does, why does he choose to make a statement here? Well, the statement he makes is in the form of an oath. It's like, like he considers himself to be on trial. I'm swearing an oath to you. that This is true. What I'm attesting to, what I've said is true. He takes a, a sacred vow to God as to the accuracy of what he is saying. He wants his, his readers to trust what he's saying, right? He says, so that you, who's he talking to today? He's talking to me and you, isn't he? Today, he's talking to me so that you may believe. Hmm. The faith that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ is not a blind leap into darkness. It is not a leap of a blind leap of faith. Uh, it is a faith and a belief into true things that happen. It is absolute truth. And John is saying here, he's saying that he has written what he has written is the truth about what happened on this day. It's real events. It's in real time. And John was saying what? Good timing. And John was saying this is so true that you can build your entire life upon it. You can take it to the bank. Bell has rung, so I will pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. Father, thank you for uh, the study we have. Uh, Father, we pray that you will uh, use your word to to change us, to make us more like Christ for the sake of your kingdom, Father. And we ask as we leave this time, Father, we prepare our hearts for our worship service this morning. And we pray that you'll be with our pastor as he leads us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.